Recorded live in two states and neither one of them are New York. It's Transformation Thursday. My name is Amy Stevens and my pronouns are she, her. And I'm Jamie Rodriguez, the general counsel of the Transformation Thursday podcast network. And my pronouns are also she, her. Today, we welcome to the podcast, Dr. Carrie Prey, who teaches scientific communication at Stevenson University in Owings Mills, Maryland. Last month, Carrie presented to Oxford University on the importance of using queer inclusive language in scientific communication and the bimodal distribution of gender. Today, we're gonna talk with Carrie on how messy human biology is and how that requires us to have deliberate conversations. But before we speak with Carrie, we will be right back after this short message. This is Jamie Rodriguez, the General Counsel of the Transformation Thursday Podcast Network, here to remind you that Transformation Thursday is copyrighted material, all rights reserved 2021. You can support Transformation Thursday by leaving the podcast a five-star rating and writing a short review on Apple Podcasts. It's free and helps get Transformation Thursday out to a larger audience. On Twitter and Instagram, follow us at TransThursPod. On Facebook, you can follow the podcast by searching for Transformation Thursday Podcast. Welcome back to Transformation Thursday. I'm Jamie Rodriguez and my pronouns are she, her. And I'm Amy Stevens, and my pronouns are she, her. After that quick little short break, uh, we're welcoming to the podcast, as Jamie mentioned in our open today, Dr. Carrie Prey. And Dr. Prayer, can we just call you Carrie? Can we do away with the format? (laughs) Welcome to Transformation Thursday, and thanks for coming on this afternoon. Thank you for having me. So, you know, you and I have kind of been following, well, not kind of, we've been following each other for, you know, a few years on the ex-Mormon Twitter stuff. So um, I think both of us have that in our background. So, yes. Yep. So it's nothing like having Mormonism in that rear view mirror, isn't it? It adds like a whole lot of layers to all of these issues. <laughs> it, yeah, it sure does. And Jamie's a never mo, so, but... Uh-huh. My wife is also a never mo, and when I explain things to her, like the looks on her face, it's amazing. Yeah. Like, is that really a yeah. thing? <laughs> like that can't be real, and I'm like, oh, honey, <laughs> I gave you like the yeah, no, it's real. Do you really yeah. wear the underwear? Yes, yes, yeah, 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 yeah. So yeah, but you know, Jamie's also been on the Latter Day Lesbian podcast too, so you know. She's she's pretty up to date on her never mo and exmo, you know, verbiage. So, you know, <laughs> we're all in good company here with that. So, there's a fun exmo community in uh, Northern Virginia in the DMV in general. There is, it's true. And then anybody that like is on Twitter with me like ends up getting roped into the Mormon like the ex Mormon world. And so like I have like these Jewish friends and these like doc friends and like these these people from medieval Twitter who are suddenly like tweeting, like, why are there so many gay Mormons suddenly in my feed? And I'm like, oh, (laughs) (laughs) that would be my fault. (laughs) My bad. Yeah. Yeah. I've always had friends who are like, what do you use Twitter for? I'm like, ex-Mormon stuff. That's about it. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Make friends. (laughs) It it is amazing. You do end up making friends in, in that environment. There's a few people that, you know, that you know, even if I haven't met them face to face that, you know, we message each other, but then I've also met like ex Jehovah witnesses. I've met, you know, 
you know, somebody who's been on the podcast, Penny Gold, you know, very comes from a very ultra orthodox, almost, you know, community in Brooklyn and lived, grew up in Israel. And so you kind of find out through some of these ex communities of religion that we have a lot in common. We do. And a lot of shared trauma. Like it's incredible. The number of people that you meet. Yeah. And the stories, the different viewpoints. It's great. I love Twitter. Twitter's great. Yep. Well, we didn't come on here to talk about Exmo Twitter. I mean, that's a whole nother podcast interview. <laughs> Several, yeah. <laughs> yeah, but, we, you know, you you gave a little talk last month via Zoom with um, the folks over in Oxford University. And did, yes. I tuned in for that and was really blown away. And so, you know, you talk a lot about, you know, and you're, you're a professor at Stevenson University, or do you teach there? What's your title there at Stevenson yeah, so I'm, I'm, I'm teach at Stevenson University. Um, I teach scientific communication. Um, and so I'm in the Department of Mathematics and Physics, although I don't actually teach math or physics. So that's a little confusing. I teach mostly writing-based communication. Um, I, and I also do like some like senior capstone management of, of projects and things of biology students mostly, um, sometimes math students, sometimes um, chemistry students, sometimes biochem students, a lot of forensic students. I know a lot of ways to dispose of a body and that's just, I don't know if that's something I should have said on the podcast, but I just did. So it's fine. Yeah. <laughs> that's what I do for a living. Note, um, to, note to self, don't upset Carrie. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There, uh, there, there, there's a lot of interesting forensics things that my students have studied before. And I'm, so I've, I've supervised a lot of interesting, interesting projects. If we, if we need that expertise in the middle of the night someday, we'll, we, we'll keep you on speed dial. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. So you, you, you talk about communication and scientific. So you're not teaching physics or math. So just so you know, a high level, are you helping these students? And you said thesis advisement and stuff like that. So are you helping these people who think very analytically, very scientifically and in math terms, are you helping them with their communication style to help them write and get their ideas across so that way they can do a thesis and, you know, communicate their thoughts? Because having a brother who's an actuary, sometimes thoughts up here don't really come out and communicate very well to the real world. Absolutely. Yeah. So my, my background is in writing. Um, I'm a writing person specifically. I've taught writing for more than 20 years. I taught at BYU for almost 15 years. I taught writing at BYU. So when I'm teaching the, the scientists how to write, I'm really sort of trying to give them some basics of the communication, just of, of the rhetorical process in general, which is identifying who am I talking to and why am I talking to them and what's going to work when I talk to them, what's going to be effective for what I want to do. And so like with scientists, they have this really stark difference between when they are talking to other scientists and the things that they're going to do when they're talking to other scientists versus when they're talking to people like lay people, normal people, normal people, non-scientists, there's, well, anyway, um, so <laughs> yeah, like lay people in general, when you're talking to a lay audience, it's, it's, it's a lot more about emotion, about holding interest, about saying something that is, is useful, um, but if you're talking to an expert scientific audience, there, it's, it's not something that's done for fun, you're, you don't communicate because you want to talk like it's not like let me tell you this fascinating amazing thing 
Like it's, it's the process of pushing science forward. And so it has to be based on, on rules and logic and order and communication. And so you have to make very deliberate choices depending on who you're talking to and why you're talking to them. And so we, we talk a lot about that when we do um, communication and we, we focus specifically a lot on writing um, partly because that's my background, but partly also just because that's what they need to do the most. They need to write their papers and write their theses. And so that's, that's what we talk about. We talk about how we take the science and keep it accurate and keep it what we need it to do. And how do we communicate it to one audience versus another audience? You know, I had a, I was wondering how you, um, how do you communicate kind of like LGBTQ issues in a scientific way? And like, how do you deal with some of the assumptions that I used to be an engineer and I have, you know, I know a lot of big brain engineer types who they're very smart in their area, but they don't necessarily know the science behind, um, you know, biology, for example. So like, how do you bridge that gap when you're dealing with people of different kind of technical um, communities? I mean, it can be tricky because one of the hardest things to do is to identify our assumptions and when we're making assumptions and when we're not making assumptions and what's going into our bias and what's not going into our bias. And we also have to determine things like how is power, politics, emotion, how is that affecting what we're saying? And even if, so if I'm an engineer and I'm talking to a biologist or I'm a biologist and I'm talking to a physicist, I might think that they're gonna have shared vocabulary, but they may or may not. And I have to learn how to say, okay, what, what do they know and what don't they know? And how do I figure out what needs to be communicated and what does not need to be communicated? Um, and that's tricky. And so sometimes it's easier than other times. I usually tend to have students sort of treat a scientific audience that's not from their field of expertise a little bit more like a lay audience, only we focus more on, on logic and on evidence than we would say if we were talking to a lay audience where we wanted to focus on emotion. What's the emotional effect? What's the what's the the, the position of power that this is coming from? Um, what's the the political effect of this? Like how is this functioning? Um, so yeah, you, it, it always starts with identifying who am I talking to and what do they know and what am I trying to say and what's going to get in the way of me being able to say that to them. Oh, that's great. I, I yeah, I think like you, what you said about having a common vocabulary, often people think they have a common vocabulary and they just don't, you know? No, they don't. <laughs> I mean, that was sort of what I we talked about within the Oxford talk. And I was worried at first that like I was, it was gonna be so super basic that everybody would already know every single thing that I would say, but like, I think it's not always that, that simple. I think people don't always know all the same things that, that we think are really basic. And so like, it, it, it takes a lot of evaluation and reevaluation, even when I'm talking to people a lot. And that's what, that's what we talked about in, in that talk was just how do we, where do we start? Where, are, what's our common terms that we start with and our ideas that we're starting with. You mentioned in there in that last answer too, you talk about examining biases and where you're coming from, and you use the word power, but that also bias power also talks to privilege. Mm -hmm. And so, and I would imagine, and maybe this is my assumption in making and asking this question, but are these folks who are used to examining their power and their privilege within society? And so is are these new concepts for them that they have to start to grapple with as they, you know, embark in their careers now in, a, in the scientific fields? 
Well, when I teach privilege um, in, in my classes, I usually start from, from the assumption that maybe this is not something that they've fully examined before. I mean, these, they, they can be as young as 18 year old kids in my class. I don't know that there's a, a vast habit of 18 year olds considering the, the privilege in which they find themselves. Um, but I, I do have a couple of things I try to do. I sometimes will assume that like they maybe have heard the term before and that maybe some of them might find it defensive. Like I, I have suffered. I'm not a privileged person. Like I have been through stuff, right? And that, that might be a, a viewpoint that you're coming from, which isn't the most useful viewpoint to start with, with privilege because pri privilege is not like the, the presence of a particular advantage. It's the, the absence of specific disadvantages. And so like I tell the story of when my wife moved in with me and I'm six feet tall. I'm a very big, big girl. And she's not quite as tall. She's five foot five. And she came into the kitchen and she was putting things away. And she said, where's your step stool? And I looked at her and I said, my what? <laughs> I'm like, what are you talking about? <laughs> and she's like, your step stool. And I said, what? <laughs> and she's like, how do you put things away? And I just took the cup and I that you wouldn't be able to reach the shelf. That was, that was a disadvantage that I did not have in my life. It was a privilege that I did not know. Like privilege is blind. You don't know that you have it until somebody points it out. Like it's the absence of a disadvantage. You're not gonna think to yourself like, oh, how lucky am I that I don't have this particular challenge that has never challenged me. And I never would know that it even existed until you told me that it existed. And so like, is it, is it a terribly moral failing on my part that I did not know that some people needed a step stool? Not, not particularly like, and does it mean that I'm not going to get cancer? Like, no. Does it mean that I haven't suffered? No. Like it doesn't mean any of those things. It means that in this particular context, I lacked a disadvantage that I didn't know about until she pointed it out to me. And so like, this is the concept we talk about with privilege. So that's, the, that's where we start with privilege for them is the absence of something that you don't even know that you're missing. You don't know that this is something that you haven't suffered. You can't know. That's the definition of privilege is to have something that hasn't happened to you. <laughs> and so like, that's, that's where we talk, we talk about it. And we start from that point. We, we try to do that with most of the biases that we talk about. We go back to a very implicit place, like talk about like who, who taught you to go into which bathroom. Nobody remembers unless something bad happened um, which, with, with the bathroom. Or like we talk about, you know, like if you are, if your boyfriend is a slob, like is, is, is anybody going to think anything about bad about him because he's a slob? They might think, oh, that's cute. He needs a girlfriend to help clean him up clean up his apartment whereas like if you're a girl and like you have a slob of a house like people are gonna be like oh my gosh that's gross you're a gross girl there's like different levels of of, of emotionality and experience that, that go into things um, another thing that sort of helps when we talk about privilege with them is talk about like the fact that the privilege is not like you there's not just privileged people and unprivileged people so like when i'm on an airplane the fact that i am six feet tall is a problem that, that my wife has never had. She's never had, she's never gotten off an airplane and had bruises on her knees before because of the, the rough ride, but I have. And so in that particular contextual setting, she was the one with the privilege for the exact same thing that gave me the privilege in a different context. Privilege is always contextual. It's specific and contextual and about very particular disadvantages in particular places. It's not a moral failing and it's not ubiquitous. It doesn't mean that you're not gonna have other problems or other things that happen. It's just a very 
particular contextual fact. When you're like trying to um, like bridge assumptions, are there like some key things that you find yourself having to explain like frequently or like, you know, like key, key concepts that, um, that people assume are one way, but really aren't or? Assumptions are tricky because they're by definition, the things that we, we don't think about. We don't think about it. Like I was talking um, to a friend just a little bit earlier about coming on the, the podcast and talking about, well, what science do I know? And what science don't I know? I don't actually know. And, and they were like, well, why is the science even a thing? Why would that matter? And so like the idea that like it matters at all science, that would be an assumption that we would come in. And it, we don't think to ask these questions in normal life. We just were like, well, the science is cool and it matters. <laughs> like, why would I do this? Um, there is There are a lot of examples within science of how bias and assumptions um, have messed up scientific results. Like there was a scientist named Dr. Doris Taylor who I adore and absolutely have a crush on. And if I have a puppet of her, oh, I think I can reach it. Yes, I can. Here's my Doris Taylor puppet for your people who can't see her. She's very, I have my puppet. But um, so Doris- That is so awesome. <laughs> I Zoom taught the last year. So I have all my things right here to, to teach. Um, so Doris had an experiment she was doing with stem cells and she wanted to research how to repair damage after a heart attack. And stem cells should be really, really, they're promising. Like they're cells that can turn into anything. You should be able to repair a heart. You should be able to regrow a hand. You, a stem cell should be so much powerful than it has been. And it hasn't ever been like, they just could not get it to be powerful. And so they were trying to figure out what to do. And so she wanted to create an experiment and, and stem cells are tricky because they're cellular. And usually when you do an experiment, you want to control. You want to say like, which one is the, the one that I've changed, which one isn't. And if I'm going to put cells into somebody's body and see if the heart repairs, how do I know it's the stem cells that did it? How do I mark something that's cellular that becomes another cell within that person's body? You can't, you, you could just either like, and she wanted to actually mark it. So she's like, okay, what am I going to do? is I'm gonna use the sex chromosome as a marker. And so I'm gonna take male stem cells and put them in female rats. And I'm gonna take female stem cells and put them in male rats. And that I'll use the sex chromosome as a marker. Really sort of simple, straightforward thought. Um, and what happens after she did this experiment was something really alarming and shocking. Um, all of the male mice suddenly were better. Their heart disease went away. Everything was great. All the girls died. And like, they were like, they were like, what, what is happening here? It was very distressing and terrible. And she had this sort of horrific light bulb moment about all of stem cell research. So one thing a lot of people don't know about all laboratory research of animals is that 98, 99% of lab animals are males. And it's because of this old bias that they teach you, they used to teach and they used to say, well, like the male experience is the generic experience, but a female mouse is going to have hormones and periods and these things that are going to mess up the data and they're going to cause these variations that are hard to track so it's just always better to only research males the best way to research a male or, or female experience is a male rat and that was just this assumption that it always existed in science and it was one that she had always adhered to too because why would you question it until you have a reason not to question it and so she had these mice that had these drastically different experiences, and she had this horrific realization that they had done 20 years 
of stem cell research focusing on male stem cells, which were not the active stem cells, female stem cells, the ones they put into the male mice, those were the ones that had the power to actually change what was happening in the body. Those were the ones that were much more active. Um, and so that was, that's an example we talked about when we talk about assumptions. We just, assumption is the thing we don't think to question. Somebody tells us something, like somebody told me when I was a child that like women had one fewer rib or more, whichever, because, um, or I think it was one more because they took the one from Adam to make Eve or whatever. And, and like somebody told me in Sunday school, like, oh yeah, that's totally true. And they're just like explaining science and it never occurred to me to question that. Like this happened like last year. And somebody was like, yeah, no, that's not true. And I was like, what? why is that not true like I there's no I was mad about it like I was I was upset like emotionally upset but I had made an assumption and I just never thought to question it because it had been taught to me and nobody had ever given me a reason to question it and there's a million things like that a thousand things like that when it comes down to like the choices we make about what we eat or what we wear or what we do or what we say, the things that are right, things that are wrong, the things that we think are good or bad, they're all assumptions and they, we don't necessarily have a reason to question them until we do. And that's the hardest thing about assumptions is you don't know that you have them, but you have thousands, hundreds, millions of them every day and they're affecting your life at every moment. And you're never going to know that they're there until they become a problem or until somebody shows them to you. That, that's pretty amazing because that just shows how complicated chromosomes and sex and all this stuff is. And this kind of is a nice jumping into point to our, you know, conversation on those complications of that bimodal distribution of gender. So, I mean, when you start getting into these things and you start talking about them, they become messy pretty quick, don't they? And how do you, how do we communicate that, you know, not only for scientific crowds, but also, you know, just for everyday life, how do we start having these conversations, you know, X, Y, X, X, and all these things. And there's, you know, four other sets of chromosomes that humans can have that still survive, you know, out of the womb. Well, even when you have the right chromosomes, it doesn't necessarily mean anything. You can have the perfectly healthy XY chromosomes and androgen insensitivity, and none of the cascading effects that happen because of testosterone will affect you and you will be perfect physical female um, because of that androgen insensitivity. Um, and even with, say, if you have an XY set of chromosomes, um, the, the sex-linked process on the Y chromosome is... It, it's related to a portion of the gene called the SRY portion of the gene. Um, and this is responsible for sex differentiation. It's what makes, when it becomes active, it's what makes a male a male. But the problem is that it's not like a simple switch. You can't turn the switch on and say, now that this is on, this is an SRY male and this is an SRI female. They're, they either have this or they don't. And I've actually seen somebody try to make the argument. There is only, there are only SRY positive males and females, there's nothing else. And it's just not true. If you have that SRY Y chromosome, what it is is more of a, a trigger that starts a cascade of process. Like sex differentiation is so incredibly complex. There's a million reactions that happen. And it's more like you just like pull a, a starting pistol at the beginning of a race and then a thousand things go on and there's obstacles and there's things that can go wrong and they're all timing and dose dependent, which means there's always going to be this massive, massive spectrum of possible outcomes. And even if everything about the genetics goes the way that you expect it to, it can still be skewed by environment. Um, for example, a female 
twin that's part of a fraternal set of a male female group is more likely to end up on the LGBT spectrum because the brain of the fetus is going to be exposed to the testosterone of the brother in the womb. And that will change the way that it develops. And that's completely separate from the genes. And so these are things that are affected by the genes, by the by environment. They're affected by the epigenome. They're affected by which genes get turned on and off when. They're affected by so many things that are so complicated that there's literally not a way that it's ever going to come out clean. Like I, humans are just super messy. Like we're just these walking sacks of emotional messes who feel things and do things. And who knows what's going to happen with our bodies. Our bodies just do whatever they want to do. Like they are complex. And the biology supports the fact that they're incredibly complex. You know, one thing I think of is um, when I'm talking about this from kind of a legal policy standpoint, there's so many times where you, he you hear people, um, especially who are against the LGBTQ community, they will say what I call sciencey sounding things like, you know, it's all, it's all biology, it's boys and girls, and you know, there's, you know, ne never something in between. They just, and they just assert that like, that's fact. And, and then from that, they assert various policy choices that they're making. And it's really not science. It's just a rhetorical value. How do you how do you start to talk about that to 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 a lay person about you know how it's not so straightforward? It's it, there's definitely. I mean, you've given some examples just now, but like, how would you start that conversation? I think the trickiest thing for scientists is to realize the layers of meaning that are happening in their language that are not happening. Like in science, things are pretty straightforward. There's procedures and there's re repetition and it's logical. And it's very, one of the most difficult things is to convince a scientist that if something is logical and that they can explain it logically, that's not necessarily gonna be an effective communication strategy. People would rather feel things than know things logically. Logic is not terribly persuasive. Um, and so like understanding the power and the assumptions and the emotions become so much more important when you're talking to a lay audience than understanding the logic. Like you can make it very simple and very straightforward when you're a scientist talking to a lay audience, um, but you're not going to be effective unless you understand how the emotion is working, how to counter the emotion, how to make your statement not just be logical, but to feel logical, which is an entirely different set of skills rhetorically and in, in language to, to feel logical, to feel authoritative. Um, you're dealing a lot more with feelings when we're talking to, especially with political things. And these political things are much more, the, the, the content is not the thing that ends up being persuasive. And that's the most difficult thing to convince scientists where you have to know more about power and position and what is the function of the language if you want it to work. Um, and that can be difficult. I know, like you talked about chromosomes and, I, and there's more than just XY. I mean, there's, can you talk about some of those other variations in the chromosomal makeup or like other conditions that exist? I mean, it depends a lot on, on species, for example, like in drop flies. So in these little flies that are very common, they have like, let's see here. So the, the, the fruit fly, you have XX, XXY, XXYY, all of those are females. Um, and XY and XO, which we don't even have an O in humans, like that is the only thing that can make a male. 
Um, whereas in a bird, they've got a Z chromosome and a W chromosome. Um, in lizards, you can have all the right chromosomes, but if the temperature is too hot, it activates another gene that turns it into a female, whether it's a male or a female. Um, the lizards have ZW female embryos and the males have like the ZZ, but the ZZ, you can also have a ZZ female because it's too hot. Like, and these are all things that happen just in the animal world. Like in the human world, you have a lot of different intersex conditions that can happen. You can have like XXY, um, you can have XY with androgen insensitivity. Um, you can have, oh, I would have to look up some of the other ones, but there's just literally like hundreds of thousands of possibilities that exist. It's, it's not as simple. Um, Amy or, or, or earlier mentioned bimodal distribution of sex versus binary distribution of sex. So binary means it's either or, or. Uh, is it zero or it's one, it's male or it's female. And a lot of people will try to say, this is how sex differentiation works. Um, if that were true, we wouldn't have intersex people at all. And we do. We have, we have people that, that have a whole variety of different intersex conditions um, that can't quite be classified one way or the other way. There's just too much in between. Instead, we sort of are looking at human sex as bimodal, which means there are two peaks. We've got mostly males and mostly females. That is, most people tend to end up in one one peak or the other peak, but there's a whole range of possibilities in the middle um, that you can have occur, that can and do occur. And then we have a whole noted spectrum of outcomes. And this happens with every level of sex, with the primary sex characteristics, with the secondary sex characteristics, all of them. Um, and we all know this, like with something like height, for example, on average, women are not as tall as men are on average. I'm a six foot tall woman. I'm, I'm taller than I think something like 80% of men, like I did the numbers once, it was sort of alarming. So like, I, I'm not less of a, a female because of the fact that I'm a massive Viking, but it's a secondary sex characteristic that does exist and there's variation within that. It doesn't make, it's just, it's, it, there's a lot of things in the middle with any individual characteristic. And so this can come when it comes to the genitalia, there's a whole wide range of possibilities with height, with voice. I have a, a pretty low voice for a, a, a female. Um, that's just part of, was born with my, my low voice, hand size. Like there's a million things that are different, body hair. We've all known like a really hairy girl or like a really not hairy boy. Like it doesn't like, these things are variable. And we, we know girls that are more girly and we know boys that are more there's not a word that's boily. That feels very sexy. <laughs> right? Exactly. <laughs> There's girly, but not boily. Like I'm a little mad now. So yeah, no, like, it, yeah, we, we know that these variations exist and we know that there's a lot of options that exist. We already all know that gender is bimodal and that any characteristic itself doesn't necessarily mean anything. There's just a, a million options. And, and I, it, I think the resistance to it is, is much less about actual biology and much more probably about power and emotion and religion and things that are far more complicated than biology is. And biology is a mess. Like it's the messiest of the sciences, I feel like, like of all of the sciences. And yeah, I probably shouldn't say anything else because I don't, I, I have biology friends. <laughs> but oh, I did, won't hear I this. Oh, sorry, go ahead, Amy. Well, you mentioned in there a couple of different things and there's a whole bunch of, you know, 
I want to track back to the SRY gene for a moment because we know in the fish world that that gene can turn on and off. Right. Well, and that's so what happens to those little lizards where you, it, it, it's not SRY, I think, in the lizard itself, but the, the corollary to it for the lizard, you can turn it off um, by temperature for the lizards. Um, and there's also like, there's just so many options that exist in nature. Like I just was reading about this tree that's like 3000 years old or something. And after 3000 years of being a male tree, it's like, no, I'm gonna be a female tree now. <laughs> it's a female tree. And like lizards are changing gender all of the time. Like lesbian lizards, like a lot of les- lizards are lesbians and like they give birth to each other's babies. And like there's-, there's- Oh, lizards. So <laughs> It's just so complicated that like it whenever you hear people saying like oh it's biology it's simple it's science you just want to say like you really don't know a single scientist because there's nothing about reality or biology that is simple and not messy like it's messy whatever can happen does happen and whatever mess that is possible will be a bigger mess than you think that it is like it's it'll be a mess on the cellular level on the genetic level on the outward level we're just messy. We're messy creatures that exist. Life is messy. Yeah, I think it's important to accept that. And it's like, <laughs> intersex people don't need to be fixed. They're just people. You know, I think the like the biases that existed, like you said, I mean, it wasn't really science, but I don't know, the prevailing attitudes 50 years ago were, uh, you know, you have to do surgery on these kids, you know, and change them immediately. And I mean, it's, it's sad that that was the prevailing thought. I'm I mean, I'm glad that it seems to be changing. I think it is slowly changing, which is good. I think there's still an enormous amount of pressure to, even for queer people to like be put into one box or another box instead of just like letting things be a little bit chaotic. Like, doesn't matter if you can't put it in a box. It doesn't matter if you can't name it. Um, This is part of why I tend to identify as queer. Like the details are very convoluted. Like, I don't know that I want to be put into a particular box um, because of that. Like it's, that's just too difficult and (laughs) it's too constraining. Like it's, it's, it's more details than I want to give in public to anyone if I'm talking about it, you know, like it's, it's messy. We're messy. Um, if, you know, and I, I approach this, you know, not only looking at it from a scientific, but also from a mental health perspective, a lot of, you know, people struggle to put emotions and labels and to put things in boxes because that's the way our brains kind of think, not kind of, you know, that's the way we think. And so we like that order in our brains, however, that looks individually for us. But yet we just know, as you said, from the scientific world, it's not that cut and dry. So, but you also talked on something in there. And I think, you know, we'll go back to our ex-Mormon and religious conversation, but you mentioned scripture, you know, hey, you know, the one more rib thing. And, you know, it's having those conversations with people too, saying, you know, the Bible isn't a science book, right? You know, the Bible is not a book of facts. I was listening to a podcast yesterday on this. The Bible is a, the Bible is a book of truth, very, but it's also based on myth. And so, you know, how, how do we approach listening that? to people talk about science in the Bible? And I think that just, and you talk about the emotion of that. We've learned these stories. We've learned these myths over time. And it's been very binary, especially in our Western religious cultures. So it's not going to change overnight, but having the conversations can help with that. I think that's, you know, the big lesson I'm taking away. 
one, I used to do this rhetorical exercise when I taught at BYU and we were supposed to loop religion into everything um, where I had my students explain evolution. I said, okay, you're God and you're going to explain evolution to Moses because he just came up to you and said, where did this all come from? How did I exist or anything? So you're on the mountain and you're God. You're like, all right, explain it to Moses in a way Moses can understand. And then like have Moses come down and then I have them write a second draft and say, now you're Moses. Now you need to explain it to Aaron. Um, um, and Aaron's got to explain it to the people. And that's the text that we have in the Bible. And so then I have them read like Genesis two, like it's very similar. Like when it comes, even if we want to say the Bible is not a scientific text, the Bible is a human text. The, the Bible, even if it is a divine text and we want to start from that assumption, it's not something we can prove or not prove, but it's a perfectly reasonable assumption to start with if we believe in the divine. Even if we believe that, even if we believe that there's truth in it, it's still a rhetorical text. It's still a human text. It's still a text that's trying to take truth and make sense of it in a way that's human. And if humans are around, we just are like, I, I need a better word than messy for us, but we are messy. Like we can't do anything cleanly. Like there is nothing about us. <laughs> we are just big little dumpster fires. Uh, bless all of our hearts walking around, just making chaos all of the time. Like we don't know what we're doing. We can't communicate very well. Our language is limited. We don't have words. We don't even re realize that we don't have words until we try to say girly and boily and then we're mad. Like, <laughs> Like we are tricky and problematic that way. And so that can help too, even with the scripture, just like at a certain point, the why doesn't matter. The how doesn't matter. The science doesn't matter anymore. We exist, period. What do we do now? How do we treat each other? It's more important question to me. I, you know, you talking about girly and boily, I think that's interesting in that, you know, there is a word manly, but like girly is kind of this dominionized form, you know, that doesn't really exist for boys, you know, it's, 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 a, it's kind of an interesting bias in our language. But <laughs> it is, yeah. I have one question about like, when you were at B BYU, how did the church influence what you could teach kids about <laughs> yeah, I mean that seems like <laughs> that would be a, a huge hand on the one side of the scale so to speak uh, up until 2008 it was a fireable offense for me to say out loud that I was gay wow. it was a fireable offense to admit to my bishop that I was gay because being gay alone was a fireable offense up until 2008 um, and that changed as long as you weren't acting on it but there's still so much pressure to like, you know, it's not like a thing that you're allowed to do. And you weren't really allowed to speak about a whole lot of things. And you had interviews like every six months or something like you had your ecclesiastical endorsement every year. You had to keep a temple recommends like one time. Oh, like, whoa, 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 whoa. we're not an ex-Mormon podcast. So we're going to. Okay. <laughs> I was like one time. <laughs> yeah, let's, we're throwing out a lot of Mormon terms here. So let's. So when you say interviews and you say ecclesiastical interviews, you and I know what those are. And I'm sure Jamie might have heard of these through, especially Shelly Johns. But what, what does that look like? What are the questions they're asking you? Oh, gosh, what aren't they asking you? They ask all hard. kinds of personal questions. Like, basically, the concept is you can't teach at BYU or go to BYU unless your bishop says that you're worthy to. And how do they decide that you're worthy to? They interview you usually once a year, sometimes more. 
Um, you have to have a current temple, temple recommend, which has specific questions that are attached to it. Um, some of the questions that are asked about the law of chastity, the word of wisdom, like, do you drink coffee? I could get fired for drinking coffee. Are you honest with your fellow man was one that I always found a way to flub around a little bit because I would just be like, well, I write fiction. And then I just wouldn't answer it anymore. And like, <laughs> <laughs> and that usually got me at least past like, like the stake president. And then, like, or not the, the bishop. Then you, then you have to have an interview with the stake president, who's the guy above the bishop, before you really get your temple recommend interview that you have to keep to be able to teach at BYU. Um, and like this one guy, like he was going off one time. He's looking at me and he's just like, we have to respect the apostles and the prophet because if we were worthy enough, we would be the apostles. And I'm sitting there and I'm, I'm a, a woman, <laughs> yeah. literally not allowed to be an apostle. And I was just like, huh, okay, okay, Th there's that. Your whole gender is not worthy enough. My whole gender is not worthy. And so I was like, I've never heard it put quite that straightforward before. Thank you, president. Um, so you have, and if they don't like you, they can say, no, you're not worthy to teach at BYU. So it's always really stressful. Like, and if your temple recommend runs out, this happened to me one time. I was literally like in the hospital. I was in the ICU in the, the burn unit and my temple recommend ran out and I couldn't go in and get a new one. I was in the ICU. My bishop came to me. Oh my God. <laughs> because he's like, BYU won't let you keep your job unless I, I ask you these questions. <laughs> <laughs> so, sitting by my hospital bed talking about have you been keeping the law of chastity and I'm like I literally have a catheter right now yes I think <laughs> I've been unconscious so anyway yeah, but, it, it is very invasive and different BYU but for a non-Mormon the temple recommend is what gets you into a Mormon temple because not every member of the Mormon church can go into the temple they're dedicated specific buildings and you have to have a card with your name on it, signed by two guys, the bishop, who's your local clergy and congregational leader, and then, lack of a better term, the regional vice president, who's the stake president, who signs off on it to say, Dr. Prey is worthy to go into the temple. And you talk about chastity, tithing, so you have to give 10% of your income, however you didn't, you know, there's all these questions in there. And the chastity questions being asked to kids as young as 11 years old. Yeah, it's awkward. You know, it's awkward. so, you know, th this is stuff that's like deep Mormon indoctrination. And it's just crazy that you're in an ICU and you can't keep your job unless you have this card signed. So it's this, this whole worthiness recommend thing. It's, it's taken very seriously within the Mormon faithful. And, you know, if you work at BYU or any other church institution. Yep. It's a lot. And it just create, like just the experience of going through those things creates biases and assumptions that we're all not aware of and things we don't realize that we're not saying and questions we don't realize we're not asking. Um, and that interferes quite a bit with our understanding of queer issues too, is the questions that we don't realize that we're not asking about reality or ourselves or our biology are all shaped by our experiences from the time that we're born and blessed in the Mormon church and given a name. And then we have all of these things that we that ex, that inform our life. Um, and this is where our, our worldview and our bias comes from is these experiences like 
knowing that you're going to have to get an ecclesiastical endorsement interview that will change what I'm going to say in a classroom, whether or not they ever explicitly tell me that I am or am not allowed to say certain things. Um, and sometimes they would be explicit. Like they'd be like, you can't teach these books. You can't say these swear words, even in context. Um, although it was funny because we were allowed to say certain swear words in context, as long as they weren't for freshmen, because the freshmen couldn't handle it. They would freak out. <laughs> <laughs> but like when I was talking about like the bifurcation of English in 1066 with the, with the Norman Germanic split that happened, I was allowed to swear then, but only for sophomores, not for freshmen. <laughs> what are what are some germanic square words all of them, all <laughs> all of them. okay like if you think of them it's it's because in 1066 you had the ruling class that came in and conquered and they're speaking sort of a proto form of french and so all of these words are the fancy words these are the words that the fancy people spoke so like when you think i i need to go defecate i think i might copulate later um, I have a canine with me, you know, like, and then you think of all of your swear word corollaries, like those are not like swear words. Those are Germanic words back in 1066. This is the word, the, you know, the, instead of a, a bovine, we would have a cow. Um, instead of copulating, we'd go have a good fuck. Like this is what we would do. And this is yeah. the word. <laughs> it's just how we would talk. So now all of our swear words now are are Germanic and it's because they're the dirty words and it's this is a thousand year old bias that we did not know we had. It's a bias that we've inherited that's a thousand years old. Yeah, but you can't pollute the freshman with a good fuck. You can't. Especially can't. at BYU. No, not at BYU. There is no fucking at BYU unless you're married. Levi Lovin. There's only <laughs> copulating. <laughs> only copulating and that's only in What's the name of the married student housing? That's, that's the only place that's allowed. Yeah, Y View something. I don't know. I haven't been there for a while. Yeah. How long have you been gone from BYU? We left um, Utah in 2014. Okay. And Maryland. And then came out like basically a year and a half later. <laughs> my, both my husband at the time and I did came out. Um, I've since remarried to my wife. Um, my husband has not remarried, um, but uh, yeah. <laughs> okay. There's no, I don't know anything else to say about that. <laughs> that won't get me in trouble. <laughs> well, you, well, I've noticed on social media, you all have a good relationship though. Oh yeah, we live together. Like he lives in the, the basement and he's got a little apartment. Me and my wife live upstairs. We, we co-parent the kids. We're like oh, a wonderful. Little, little sort of semi-polycule. Depends on your definition of polycule. But that's a whole other podcast. Yeah, that, that, <laughs> I like that idea a lot. I mean, I'm putting that one down. Bring Carrie back for polycue. Yeah. <laughs> what do you mean? But yeah, I mean, we could go off on, on that topic another time. But, but it's so important to have that positive relationship. So you still have your family structure, but it's just different than what it was before you both came out. Right. And you're able it's to messy. It's messy. It's messy. It's messy. It's human. It's a very it's human messy situation. Yes. <laughs> Well, exists, which is what we can say about all of the queer things they exist i think one thing good about the queer community is there's a lot of talking in the queer community in in in, in many contexts like and because i i think we are invested in understanding each other and recognizing the mess <laughs> um, and ensuring that we are kind of doing things thoughtfully and i think that's 
actually really wonderful that we have those kind of conversations. One of my favorite things about being queer, because I spent a long time like passing as straight, um, that is, is just that you have so many more options. You can do what works. Like as soon as I let go of the heteronuclear family, I could create this family that I have now, like, cause that was possible. And a, in a, the, the assumption didn't exist that said, no, that's not possible. Uh, and cause I could do whatever I want. And I love that. That's my favorite thing about being queer is that I can find a solution for anything. And it doesn't have to be the one that anybody says is the right one. It can be the one that's the right one for us, for me, for, for, for whatever, no matter how queer it is, no matter how weird it is, like, it's great. I love that. I love it when people say like, queer it up. And like, that totally is, to me, that's like, make it better. You know, yeah. it's, it's equivalent to queer it up to me now is like, we're just gonna make it all better. <laughs> Radical acceptance of what is we are and how are we gonna work with that? Like, to me, that's what it means to be queer. <laughs> well, like, you, you know, as people who used to formerly pass as straight heterosexuals, you know, I think there's, you know, in heterosexual relationships and especially romantic ones, there's a lot of assumptions that are just built into these relationships that aren't there in queer relationships. And going back to, you know, Jamie's point, you have to have these very deliberate conversations. And so, you know, you know, Carrie, you're talking about your family, you know, you have to have a very specific conversation with your ex, with your wife and with the kids and how that new family dynamic looks like. So you, like you said, this is possible, but we have to talk about it. You have to decide it. There's not yeah. like a gender role that says what you do. You know, you have to decide whose gender role is it to, to push the grocery cart in the store because <laughs> we can't, <laughs> can't split it up based on like, who's the girl? Like that's not gonna work. So yeah, you have to have conversations about who does what, what are our roles? How do we do that? And there's so many assumptions in a straight marriage and you don't realize how oppressive they were for you until they're lifted. And you, you go, oh, now I can decide what I, I'm gonna do based on what I'm good at and what needs to be done. Like life-changing, love that, love that. Yeah, you're just going to reach for the, the top shelf and somebody's going <laughs> to put this stuff on the bottom shelf. Yes. <laughs> and when you go to Trader Joe's, you just both grab a basket. Right. right. You do whatever works. Yeah. So, well, I think this is a, you know, we've been talking for almost, you know, 40 minutes here. So I think this is probably a good place for us to jump off on a Sunday afternoon. What do you think, Dr. Prey? I'm good with that. It was fun to talk. Yeah, it was. Thank you so much for coming on. I know we went a little bit, you know, talked a little bit more than just that bimodal distribution, but we did get in there. But, it, you know, and I think we'll have to, I like that idea of the polycue. So we'll have to come back and <laughs> I'll come talk to you about polycules. Yeah. <laughs> polycules, yes. And we know, but I think, but there's, yeah, there's a lot of good ideas in there. And I, I love that beautifulness of, you know, once the assumptions are gone, we can create whatever we want. And I think yeah. that's, you know, there's so much of that in science and there's just, it's just a beautiful thing that you're doing there. And so with your family and with your students and everything. So thanks for coming on today. Thank you so much for having me. Carrie, it's been great meeting you and um, maybe yeah. someday we can all meet in the DMV and I don't know, have a coffee or something. I'd love that. All right, well, that sounds wonderful. We'll be back with more Transformation Thursday right after this. Welcome back to Transformation Thursday. I'm Jamie Rodriguez and my pronouns are she, her. 
And I'm Amy Stevens, and my pronouns are she, her. That was a fun interview, Jamie. Um, what are we what are we taking away from this tonight? Yeah, I really enjoyed the conversation. You know, the whole thing about the bimodal distribution. And, you know, one point is that the reason it's bimodal, and many people think of it as, as binary, is that for 98% of people, it works. But for you know, uh, the, the doctor looks at the baby's genitals and, and declares they're, they're a sex at birth, but you know, for whatever, one and a half, two percent of people, it doesn't. And we need to have those communications because that's a lot of people in the end. Um, I also really loved how she talked about how messy biology is and that, you know, that really does require us to have good communication. And, you know, some people kind of resist that idea because it's too hard or it's harder to have that much communication. But, you know, once you get in the habit of having those conversations, whether difficult or not, it just becomes more natural to communicate more effectively. And so I think that's really one of the great takeaways. Yeah. And I, th I think that I'm going to play off that with my takeaway. It's like, you know, you and I, you know, when we've discussed this, you know, you're a lawyer, I'm not a lawyer, but somehow I like to structure my conversations with people in my head very logically. And Carrie touched on this, that logic doesn't work for a lot of people because they are operating out of emotion, out of fear, out of what they perceive that world truth to be. And when it comes to gender, it really is for them that bimodal distribution and anything that upsets that for some reason really upsets them. So I think it's one of the things that, you know, when we're having those uncle, we're having, excuse me, when we are having those conversations with our uncle Bob at the Thanksgiving dinner table here in four months, you know, that's something to think about. Like, how can we have that conversation with somebody sitting across from us who disagrees with us, but do it in a way that understands their feelings and their emotions just versus like, here's the science, you're wrong and I'm right because that doesn't do, that's not a productive conversation for anyone. Yeah, you know, I think of it in kind of the legal context, it's kind of the difference between writing a brief to a judge, which is probably gonna be a little more logic oriented and trying to convince a jury of something which you know, you have to then bring in the emotions and the backgrounds of the people on the jury and the um, how do you tell a good story so that they can grasp it. And, you know, from that standpoint, I always find being a little vulnerable and like telling people how these concepts actually affect real people, that's often a little more persuasive than just pure logic. No, and that's actually proven, science proves that out. People are going to be more persuaded by stories and vulnerability. But, you know, when you're dealing with your legal situation, there's going to be a, one set of writing for the judges and, you know, other professionals and another set of writing for people like me. So there you go. Well, thanks for joining me today, my fabulous co-host and podcast general counsel, um, the checks in the mail. Oh, you're, wel you're welcome. I'm always happy to come on. All right. Well, we will be back next week with more Transformation Thursday. Jamie, maybe we should say goodnight now. Good night. Good night.